The thought-provoking podcast that explores the complexity of mental health through a lens that does not require a prescription. We will explore a wide range of topics with engaging discussions and personal anecdotes that provides a realistic outlook while actively engaging in our own self-discovery. Let's get ready to soar together. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again for another episode of But What If I Soar? My name is Dominique Flint, um, owner of free to be Counseling Services. And I am Devron Flint, owner of Social MacGyver. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us again. Um, this is uh, episode 17. We're going to be spending some time today talking about trauma. If you took a listen to our last podcast episode, we touched on some of our interests and we are both really interested in trauma. Um, I am a certified clinical trauma professional and, you know, Devron has talked a lot about her interest in trauma as well. Um, and so we thought it would be a good idea to, t- to, to really break down um, what it, what trauma really is. You know, I think it's somewhat of a, I don't want to say it's a buzzword, but I think that you know, we definitely talk about, you know, trauma more so than we ever have. I was talking with one of my um, colleagues, my a, a new colleague of mine, and I was just kind of introducing myself when I first started. And I was, you know, sharing like my background. And a lot of them were like, oh, wow, you, you have trauma experience. Like, because again, it wasn't for many of them, they've been in the field for 20 plus years, 30 plus years. And it wasn't such a big topic. I think initially we thought, you know, individuals who went in combat, you know, suffer from trauma. We didn't really consider all of the nuances of trauma and how many of us, you know, have experienced trauma in some form. And so we wanted to break that topic down today and really give some insight to to that. But we're going to start by discussing one high and one low. Um, So Devron, you want to start? Sure. So um, happy New Year's to everyone, um, first off. So a high and a low from these last couple of weeks. I will say um, a high is that I got to spend New Year's with my family um, and we did like the spring cleaning. So that's one of the things, traditions that I got from my mom and my grandmother is that you bring in the new year with a clean house and you um, make sure that you have some type of money in your pocket. You can, Mm -hmm. all your clothes are washed, no laundry. Um, And so I made sure that my household continued to follow that. Um, I also um, made a nice dinner, which is something that my mom and grandma were big on. Um, And then just made sure to have family time um, because that was one of the things that I want to be very intentional about going into the new year. So that was a really good time. Um, The kids really enjoyed themselves. Um, They liked what we did, we kind of talked more about um, our intentions for 2024, um, which we had kind of like worked on an intentions board during the holidays. 
um, which they really got into and it was really nice to see. Um, and then another high was a part of their intentions board. There was actually a lot of talk about mental health and therapy and uh, processing it. your emotions. And I was just like, so proud to see that. Um, because like I said, when they came into our care, I am pro therapy. I feel like, you know, everyone could use someone who is, you know, unbiased to bounce and just be like a soundboard to them to help them kind of like, obviously the, the person, the individual is the driver. Um, but the therapist is really like the passenger and just providing guidance and, and really helping them pull things out and process it in a healthy manner. Um, mm -hmm. and so when the kids first came, they were not too <laughs> happy about therapy, but, um, it's always good when you can talk to kids and you can hear the things that you have like told them about or, you know, words of encouragement, knowledge right. and things like that. And they, you know, at the time, sometimes when you are a parent or a caregiver, you're not sure if what you're saying is registering. Right. right. Um, but when you have those moments where it's like, ah, yes, like you were listening to me, like it actually got in. <laughs> right. Um, it's always good. So seeing them talk about furthering their mental health and furthering, you know, processing their emotions and the benefit of therapy. I was just like, okay, like this feels good. It's um, rubbing off. It's rubbing really off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I will say like one of the great things about their generation and in our generation as well is the openness of being vulnerable and yeah. being honest about seeking help and just being like, you know, it's not like this hidden taboo secret. Right. Um, right. And I feel like the more that people express, you know, the different emotions and feelings that they're having and seeking help and their experiences, I feel like it continues to take away that taboo. Um, and it allows yeah. more people to feel like, you know what, this is something that I can do and I don't have to feel shameful about it or, you know, have any type of negative feelings about it. So um, that was a really good, a really good high. Um, a low, I'm trying to think if I had any lows. I would say the lows have been this crazy weather. Um, Man. It's been very unpredictable. And then um, we in our household, for some reason, all have slowly gotten this cold. And it's not the flu. It's not COVID. Um, but it's just like where you feel like completely drained, um, but you're not really tired. Like you can not really go to sleep. Um, you don't really have any energy to do anything. And you have like a headache. And just like you feel very congested. It's mostly in your face. Um, I had it um, over last weekend. Then Carmen got it um, during the week for a few days. And then Brian got it on Friday. Um, and so it's not fun. Um, mm -mm. Obviously, anytime you're not feeling your best um, and then the kids aren't feeling their best, it's just something that, you know, you have to kind of just go through, especially when you have multiple people in your household, you know, like if someone gets a cold, you try your best to like isolate them, but mm -hmm. you know, like the odds of everyone kind of catching it or most of you guys catching it, it's going to happen. Um, so I would say like, that was a low, just like, uh, not feeling my best. And then the kids not feeling their best. And like, 
just knowing like you just have to like do your best and make yeah. them tea and make sure they're hydrated and stuff, but there's not more you can do. Um, so I would say like that was my low. What about you? So hi is it's a bitch birthday today. <laughs> <laughs> I done made it to 37. <laughs> so today is my birthday. Good. Thank you. Thank you. So today is my birthday. So that is definitely a high for me. Um, well, we kept it simple yesterday. Um, we went to a restaurant. There's so many restaurants in Pittsburgh, I will say. Like, that's one thing that Pittsburgh definitely has is there's lots to choose from, lots of new things to try. Um, and so that's kind of something that me and Irby are into is like, we'll try to find a, a restaurant. And the thing is like, we've been here for, huh, what's this 2000? We've been here for seven years. It'll be seven years at the end of this year. And so while we, you know, we've been here for a while, I think because we're not from here, everything is still new to us. Like we we're still into trying anything. Right. So we'll go anywhere. We'll try anything. And so we, we went to this this restaurant. I think it's fairly new. Uh, we went to this restaurant. Um, food was food was pretty good. And then there is a, a pop up museum here, um, Museum of Illusions. And for the last couple of years, like me and uh, me and Irby have been into like going to different um, museums. First, it kind of started off when we went to Nashville a few years ago for our anniversary. There was an African American museum, African American music museum in Nashville. It, was, it had just opened a few years ago. And we were like, oh, we got to go. And then we went to Charlotte and we went to their um, like art and cultural area. And so I feel like every time we like go out of town, we have to we want to pick a museum. But there's so many great museums in Pittsburgh that we just haven't really gotten to. And so I want to make that definitely something that we do in, in 2024 because um, there's just so many great museums here, too. So anyway, that pop up museum was here. So we did that. It was super fun. Um, it took about an hour to go through. Um, and then after that, there is a new bar that opened up in one of the, uh, one of the districts downtown. Um, they're in like their soft openings. So we went there it, and it was like the, the bar is like a, a, a space theme. So they had some really nice drinks. The ambiance was like, it was quiet and calm, just kind of relaxed. Um, uh, we sat there and talked to the bartender. It was cool. So we did that. And then we went to grab something to eat again before we came home. So it was, it was pretty chill, but I had a good time. It was, it was nice. Cause it's been a while since me and him just have been able to kind of get out and do something together. So that was cool. Um, and then I guess another high for me would be, um, I normally don't do like the whole planner thing, like, you know, trying to keep myself organized, but I, I feel like I definitely do intentions but I don't always kind of track them, like how I'm actually, you know, um, you know, if I'm looking at what my intentions are, am I looking at, you know, have I been able to measure that I've been able to actually achieve that those intentions, right? So if I'm looking at goals for 2024, um, I haven't always been able to like make sure that I'm actually tracking that I'm doing it. So I got a planner and I like kind of write out everything that I want to do for each week so far. So, so far, so good. It's been these, these first two weeks have been really good. I've been able to, you know, you know, keep myself, um, kind of accountable to some of the goals that I, that I have. So that's been a high. The only low I will say is reading is like my thing. I, I really like to read and, and manage that, but I just, 
I haven't really been able to dedicate the time. So my goal is to read at least 10 pages a day, but I really haven't been able to to do that for whatever reason. So I just kind of got to figure that, that part out. Like how am I managing that? You know, um, sometimes I try to do it like before the, my workday starts. That doesn't always work. Sometimes I want to do it before bed. That doesn't always work. Journaling, same thing. I want to journal like three times a week for like at least 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that really is, it's not going as well as I would like. So again, I'm just trying to figure that out. Um, so I would say if anything has been a low, it's probably been that just trying to, you know, obviously things, <clears throat> excuse me, things make sense in theory, but in practice, you know, sometimes you may have to make some adjustments. So I just need to figure out like what, what adjustments do I need to make? I do want to be reading something at least every day. You know, I do want to stick to that. Maybe the ten pages. I mean, ten pages is pretty basic, so I don't. I don't really know. I, I'm not really sure like what's getting in the way of that. I need to try to figure that out. Um, so besides that, I mean, everything else has been been good, but that that has been a low because I I have not been able to like. Again, it's only been two weeks. I, I need to chill. It's not that big of a deal. I can figure it out, but I've just noticed that that's been that's been challenging. So yeah, that's about it for me. That's not a bad low, right? But no, you know, it's, it's something not. that you're aware of. It's a goal that you have, and you know, I'm sure you'll figure out what that could look like for you mm-hmm. and how you can accomplish it because you're great at planning. So yeah, yeah. So we'll see. I I just gotta go back to the drawing board and figure that out. But aside from that, I mean, everything is been going well. Oh, another a, a high. I guess I do want to. I do want to say. So I got Savon these mindfulness cards for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, just again, trying to like help him, you know, keep himself calm. And like, so they have these animals. Um, so these animals, you know, and they kind of, uh, represent like some type of mindfulness activity. Um, and he really likes them. Like at first he really wouldn't, he didn't really want to do them. I would like have to do them first so he could like see me do them. Mm-hmm. And like now he'll, he's like, let's do a car before bed or let's do a car right now. So like he... Aww. Yeah. So like, um, one of the cards is a fox and the fox has to put on his fox ears and he has to tell you what he hears. So when he's like rambunctious and I'm trying to talk to him, I'm like, put your fox ears on. I'm trying to talk to you. What do you hear? So like stuff like that has been really, it's been really nice to see him kind of take to, um, those mindfulness cards. Cause I mean, when I got them, I, I didn't know if they would be maybe too advanced for him, you know, at this point. Um, although they do say three years plus, so I was like, I don't know, like, you know, I'm not sure it, as far as like his attention span, like again, his attention span, we can only do like maybe one or two and he doesn't even really want to do it in its full capacity, but at least he's doing something. Um, but yeah, so that's been a high. Cause I'm like, I didn't really know, you know, if he would take to it or not, but so far so good. So that's good. That's yeah. a good a good skill to have though. So mm-hmm. I'm happy to hear that he is, you know, liking it and and trying it out. So Right. Yeah, yeah. So that's been a high. So we wanted to get into this topic. So again, today's topic is going to be about trauma-informed care, the types of trauma, and really the importance of being a culturally competent and skillful therapist. Because again, you know, not to downplay that other aspects of mental health are not challenging, but trauma is definitely something that we have to be very thoughtful about, mindful about, and 
with the understanding that, you know, we're, everyone's coming into our experiences with these things that have impacted them. And so, you know, trauma-informed care really allows us to figure out how are we, how are we adjusting our lens to, to see a full person? Um, and so we thought that this would be a really good, a really good way to, to start, to start, you know, um, our first podcast of the year. So, um, before we start, I just want to, you know, give everyone a trigger warning. We will be discussing some forms of trauma today, um, on today's podcast, and those things could be challenging to listen to. So just wanted to make sure that we advise you all up front and take good care of yourselves. So the definition we wanted to start off with, and forgive me, this sun is like really, it's annoying <laughs> right now. I'm like, I'm really shining trying. on you because it's your birthday. <laughs> it's what it is. Okay. 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 <laughs> I'll take it. Um, so we wanted to start off with a definition of trauma. So I just recently went to a trauma training. The good thing about um, this organization that I found is they're, they are a like a therapeutic center. So they do provide therapy services, but they also provide trainings for clinicians. And a lot of these trainings are free um, and they're really good trainings, I would say. And so... Um, I got this definition from them. Now, there's actually obviously a definition in the DSM-5, but, you know, the DSM-5 can be a little, you know, biased in, in some ways. And so this definition comes from SAMHSA Gaines Center for Behavioral Health and Justice Transformation. And the definition of trauma that they gathered is an event or a series of events that feels terrifying and overwhelming that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful, which has lasting effects on an individual's functioning and physical, social, emotional, and spiritual well-being. So that's a mouthful. Um, and so essentially the, the, the main components of that definition are an event has occurred, that event has caused, you know, you've had an experience from that event and that experience has created effects that have been long lasting, right? And so trauma is also relative, right? So what may be traumatic for me may not be traumatic for somebody else. So I know like in in my intakes, I'll oftentimes ask about trauma history, but I will preface that by saying, it's really based on like what you would say has been impactful for you in your life. So, you know, I lost my grandmother when I was 30, you know, or close to 30. Um, that was traumatic for me, you know, but, you know, for somebody else, it may not be so traumatic. So like, again, it really depends. It really depends on the person. And so that is like an overarching definition. Um, and so we wanted to also kind of talk a little bit about this idea of big T traumas versus little T traumas, because again, everyone does experience trauma, but not um, you know, not to the same degree. And so it, 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 and that's not in a sense to minimize someone's trauma, but it is a, in a sense to say that there are different types of traumas that impact us in certain ways. And so Deborah's going to talk a little bit about big T traumas. Yeah. So the big T trauma is going to be defined as a significant event that leads an individual feeling powerless and lacks control in the world. Um, so again, when we talk about big T traumas and little T traumas, it is it gives a definition. But again, like Dominic Dominic says, that it's all individualized. So whereas 
Dom could experience a, you know, a trauma event and I could experience a similar trauma event, but it might impact us differently. Um, obviously, we both have different experiences prior. Um, and so it could definitely impact us a lot different than the other person. So some of the things that you may experience is feelings of helplessness is a key factor in big trauma. Um, and it extends to feel helpless is far bigger than that of a small trauma. So it's where you literally feel like you lack all control. Um, you feel very helpless. Um, and some people define this as like feeling stuck. Um, and they're not able to move forward um, from that event. It is played a very significant um, impact on their life. Um, big traumas are also easier to identify, um, not just by the person who experienced the trauma, by, but by others who have experienced something similar. Um, and so, you know, when you think about like school shootings, um, when you mm -hmm. think about like a terrorist attack, um, Things like that is a big, a big event um, that's going to have a significant impact on those who are witnessed it and experienced it. Um, and oftentimes, if you happen to be scrolling on social media or you happen to be looking at like your news articles and things like that and you see it, you will often say like, wow, like that's very traumatic. Um even if you didn't experience it yourself. So you're able to identify that it's a pretty big experience. Um, avoidance tends to show up in, in more ways with big traumas. Um, you know, trying to avoid um, different things that might trigger you from that event. Um, sometimes what people will say after they experience like a big traumatic event is they will... Um, avoid going back to that place again. Like they can't even see themselves going back. Just the idea of even thinking about it can be um, where it kind of just like makes them freeze. Um, brings a lot of different big emotions just thinking about it. Um, oftentimes like when, so a part of my job when I worked for my old EAP was I did critical incidents. And so we had, um, they range from different things, whether it be a shooting to um, a robbery, things like that. And oftentimes what I would hear when someone had experienced like a big T um, event is, I can't even think about going back to work right now. Like the idea literally just makes me like, Physically, I have a response to it. Like some people will say like they feel sick, nauseous, very mm -hmm. anxious, on guard, um, just even thinking like they have to return back to work. Um, thinking about like just the scenarios that may present. Um, the other thing that it could be of avoidance is it could be where even if it's not going to that particular site, it could be that things that mirror or um, make you kind of reflect on what previously happened. You're also avoiding that too. So let's say, for instance, you were involved in a shooting. You may feel yourself avoiding large crowds. 
you may avoid yourself. Um, so for like some combat veterans, we always talk about 4th of July being a possible trigger because of those loud, you know, yeah. fireworks going off and things like that. Um, and so being mindful of that, of someone wanting to like avoid those type of things because it can, it can cause them to, um, be right back into that situation. Um, even just like people being excited and yelling, if that is something that mirrors that event that you experience, that can be very triggering. And that might be something that you find yourself avoiding. Um, those who experience big traumas are hyper-focused on reducing distress and reducing reminders of that traumatic event. So like I said before, anything that could be, you know, remind them of that event that they have experienced, they tend to try to avoid it um, because it can bring up a number of different things. So I had a client before who, um, when he was homeless, he was assaulted um, very, very horribly. Um, it actually, he was knocked unconscious um, and he ended up in the hospital for several days. He was unconscious. And when he is around certain things, it can be very triggering to him. And he has to kind of practice grounding skills because he literally feels a lack of control very quickly. And he goes back to that actual event. And what he told me in session was sometimes he will find himself where he doesn't even physically feel in control of his body, where he'll just go down into like a ball and he could be like in a group setting or anything like that. And one of the things that he warned me about, because we actually were engaging in group therapy, is that if he does start to kind of like disengage and he kind of like seems like he is going into himself to not allow anyone to touch him because yeah. it can be very triggering and he can lash out. Um, and I've also dealt with veterans in an inpatient setting where I had one veteran who had experienced um combat. And he actually warned me prior to doing his assessment that sometimes he um, disengages and he goes back into that fight or flight. And he said that if I'm asking him questions and he is no longer answering to exit his room, um, because that means that he is in that state and it could be very dangerous for me or anyone else. So like, for instance, we made sure that he didn't have a roommate, um, because he had night terrors. And again, oftentimes when you're around someone who may be experiencing, um, reenactment of whatever they experience, you're, you tend to want to see like, are you okay? Right? Like you want to check on them. Sometimes you do a physical touch just to see if they're okay. And that can actually put you in danger, but it also could put that individual in danger because sometimes they're so disassociated and they're right and in back into that event that they're not really thinking of you as someone who's looking out for them. They're actually looking at you as someone who is was making them unsafe. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's it's really good to kind of pay attention to those things and know what are warning signs. Like I said, he told me, like, if he's answering questions and he just seems like he's like basically staring at me, but he's staring through me. He's not engaging with me anymore. He also told me to like focus on his chest because he would start kind of like hyperventilating. You could see him breathing a little bit more harder. Um, that was signs for me to, to exit. Like he was, he was in a state um, and not to like try to to get him out of it. He has to kind of bring himself out of it. Um, so those are things that you may experience 
daily functioning becomes overwhelming and the longer avoidance is present, it will continue to become more challenging to address. So, um, Again, I always tell people, so currently I work for another EAP and we deal with critical incidents. And so I always talk about, I just did a training about this, about your baseline. So we, you know, especially as therapists, if you are a newer client to us, we don't know what your baseline is right away. That's something that we're going to talk with you about so you can let us know what your baseline is. But you as an individual are going to know what is your baseline of functioning and and if you are have experienced some type of big trauma or even a little trauma, knowing what your baseline is and if you're not at that and you are kind of like where you're not able to even focus on just the daily activities, um, then that's something to be concerned about, right? And it's not to say that you experience a trauma and the next day you're supposed to be at your baseline. That's not what we're saying. It's that you are not at your baseline and you're having a hard time functioning, just doing your your basic daily routines. And it's at a, a longer period of time where you find yourself, you know, sometimes you might experience something and it might disrupt your eating and sleeping patterns, right? But if you find that you are, having a disruption of your eating and sleeping pattern is at a certain amount of time, that's when you start to be concerned and you know that it's something that you need to get addressed. You know, it's something that maybe you don't have the skills to actually handle it your own. So you need to ask for outside help. It's really important. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things, and I'm sure Dom has done this when you're assessing someone with trauma, is we ask you about your eating. We ask you about your sleeping. Mm -hmm. We ask you about your social supports and how you're engaging with them. Um, because those are very telling things. Um, I made a joke that we as humans are routine creatures. And so we tend to have a routine that we do, right? So in the morning, the first thing I do is get up, wash my face, brush my teeth, you know, those type of things. Um, and sometimes if you have a disruption, you even just doing that basic thing, washing your face, getting out of the bed, um, it seems like it is so tiring and exhausting to even think about doing those things. And that's when you want to kind of like think more about maybe this is a little bit more of a problem and I need to get some outside help. So it's really important to think about that. Um, some examples of a big T, like I said, a, um, a shooting, um, natural disasters, sexual assaults, um, domestic violence, a terrorist attack. Um, these are all big T events. Um, the other thing is that I will say, so um, I have been very open about being a survivor of sexual assault, right? And um after my incident, um, I was young. I was a teenager when it happened and I knew that it was wrong. Like I, you know, knew right away it was wrong. Um, but in the moment I tried to rationalize with mm -hmm. what had happened of and course. I tried to figure out and this might sound crazy, but in the moment I tried to figure out how I could make myself not be a victim. And a mm -hmm. part of that was that I had had family members who had been sexually assaulted and had shared their story and very vocal about it. And I had witnessed 
how severely impacted they were by those events. And I was so scared that that would be my reality. And so I really tried to fight against that happening. Um, And so a part of kind of processing, well, really wasn't processing, but a part of kind of like protecting myself was to disassociate it with, right? So it was, it, and again, this is going to sound really crazy, but a part of it was like, okay, what control did you have? And so like trying to make it seem like, and the end I had like made the decision, like it wasn't something that was taken from me. And I can decide how I want to to move forward with it. And obviously it was not it was not processing, it was not coping, but at the time I was young, I didn't want to tell, you know, the adults in my life about it. Um mm-hmm. and so I just kind of disassociated and I decided that I would like process through it the best way possible and that was just to act like it didn't happen or it didn't mean what other people might have thought it meant. Um, and I actually um, just spoke with a friend. And so I had obviously, you know, as a female, sadly, um, in college, I had several incidents where, you know, unwanted attention, you know, took place. And, you know, I did have a couple guys who did not understand the word no. Um, and so I was speaking to a friend the other day and I realized that as females, sometimes we minimize certain things to not have that label of sexual assault, um, to not have that label of thinking of ourselves as a victim. Um, and so that is something, a way of disassociating, um, and trying to make something make sense that really and truthfully doesn't make any sense, right? Um, I don't think there's any female, and not to say that only females get sexually assaulted because that's not true. There are males that I've worked with who have been um, sexual assault survivors as well. But I think one of the things that is being someone who has dealt with that is you try to disassociate of kind of thinking about the event in a different way so that you don't feel like a victim because when you are someone who's experienced sexual assault, you feel like someone has basically taken control from you. And it's really hard of a struggle to process that loss of control because you are not sure how you get it back. And so um, for me, I'm someone who really does well with control. Um, I, I feel like with every traumatic event that I've experienced, I have really had this sense of illusion that I was in control. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when I feel like that control has been taken from me, I do not know how to function. Um, It wasn't until more recently when I had a car accident um, that it kind of sent me spiraling that I had a great therapist who was like, made me sit with that, like, so you're not in control. How does that make you feel? And I was like, what do you mean I'm not in control? Like, what do, I don't know how to process this. Like, you're I cannot say what? Control, yeah. girl. I am in control. What you talk about? I was like, no, I am like, but it was such a, it was also a freeing. I mean, it, it is very freeing. Sessions yeah. to process through. But as someone who had experienced, you know, trauma since a child, 
that illusion of control was like my protector, right? Like Mm -hmm. it was like, you know, something I kept close to the chest. So that idea that I didn't have as much control as I thought, that was hard. It is hard. hard. (laughs) That was hard. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, you know, it's one of those things that I think for, again, speaking from someone who was sexually assaulted, um, you try to make sense. um, And and I will say the other thing that makes you want to make sense of it is that as society, we do not treat um, those who have experienced sexual assault in with regard, with um, empathy, with understanding. Um, yeah, we don't. We are quickly to um, villainize the person, especially if the um, perpetrator is someone who is well-known, well-liked, um, has influence, has power. Um, we quickly jump to discredit that individual um, yeah. who was the the person who was impacted. And so even with domestic violence, you know, um, it, it is hard being someone who has experienced those things because of how society views them um, and how they're not accepting, you know, even just filing a police report. Um, shoot, just doing a rape kit. Um, for anyone who has experienced doing a rape kit, um, oftentimes the way that they describe it is being assaulted a second time. Yeah. And and yeah. that's, it is very, very, it's really sad. Um, but if you ever had the opportunity, there's actually an episode on Grey's Anatomy. And there was a, I want to say she was African-American. She came in. And they realize that she had been sexually assaulted and they actually go through the process of processing her um, sexual assault kit and they show you what it entails. But the way that they do it is with such grace that every part of the kit, they ask her for her consent and they ask her if she wants to continue. Mm. And I think for anyone who has been someone who's experienced sexual assault, having that control and that ability to say yes or no when that has been taken from you in that mm-hmm. situation um, is so powerful. And it can help someone to feel empowered. And like Dom said, we talk about, you know, patient-centered care, patient-informed care. That's a part of it, right, is yeah. to treat someone with dignity who has literally experienced one of the worst things someone can experience and giving them the opportunity to have a choice and also not being nasty if they decide that that's not something they want to do. Um, understanding like, you know, again, you know, you, you need these rape kits and things like that. They can help with prosecution. But the other reality is, is that there's some precincts that have several rape kits. I was actually thinking that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like there's, there's the pre- precincts that that there are thousands and thousands of rape kits that go untested every year and imagine Um, imagine mm. you literally just experienced one of the worst things you can you then have to do this rape kit and then your freaking rape kit is sitting on a goddamn shelf Mm -hmm. not for years not not months years i mean 
again, like that's why I said having empathy and that patient centered care. So important. Um, and like I said, yeah. that Grey's Anatomy, I don't know which um, season it is or which episode, but they really do a great job of documenting what it's like to be from the patient's perspective, which is so important. Um, mm -hmm. And then as a provider's perspective of, you know what, like, let's give them some type of empowerment. So mm -hmm. I think that that's, that was a really good episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as, I guess, personally, I would say that the big T traumas that I've experienced have been, um, related to like attachment trauma. Um, I would say that and I have definitely had some recent therapy sessions kind of, uh, discussing this in more detail, but, um, yeah, I definitely think that I would say that some of my experiences with, my caregivers have definitely um, impacted m my attachment. And I think because of that, I um, I have definitely experienced some attachment trauma. Um, I would say that if I had to identify the attachment uh, style that I most connect with, would probably, probably be anxious attachment. Um, and this idea of attachment essentially is that when you, your first relationship, your first, um, experience with attaching to someone else is with your caregiver. Um, and specifically with anxious attachment, there is this, the challenge with the anxious or preoccupied attachment is that there are so many inconsistencies with the way that your relationship is developed, that that is what causes the anxiety, right? Because there are moments when you can expect that you're going to have love and reassurance and support and um, guidance and um, love, right? But because, but there are also moments when that caregiver don't provide that, they can't provide that to the capacity that they've they've done in the past. And so because of that, your experiences become anxious and preoccupied because you're like, sometimes you know that you can expect it and other times you, you're not so sure. Right. And so then that creates these feelings of rejection and abandonment. Right. And they create moments where you are, um, you, you, you are, you are again, preoccupied with wanting these things. And so what happens is, you know, you go into your adult life and then you kind of have those same experiences where you're afraid that you're not going to get this, this, this reassurance, this love, this belonging, right. This, this connection. Um, and I will say like, you know, although those were my experiences, I do think that um, I've worked through the um, like the hurt, you know, the, the hurt, the, the, the maybe anger, like the feelings that I had associated with those experiences. Um, I also say that I did experience um, a, I was all about to minimize, but I, I definitely also experienced, um, <laughs> um, I also experienced um, sexual abuse as well. Um, and it was for a short period of time. I doubt that's the minimization that I was about to, I was about right? To say, girl. Yeah. 
Yeah. Short. Let's let's take that short period of time. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think that also has definitely impacted um, my um, like developmental trauma. Like this happened, you know, when I was nine. So I was really young um, and really couldn't make sense of what happened at the time. And so one way that I managed through that was and I didn't know it at the time, but I think there was a lot of perfectionism that came from that. And so for years, because I, you know, because again, as a woman, as a young girl, you, you soon understand that there are not too many women or girls in your life who don't experience some form of sexual assault and sexual violence or groping cat call. I mean, you name it. Like you, you, you just don't, you don't live this life as a woman or as a girl and not know someone. It's very funny how men sometimes will say like, they don't know these men, but like, you can't find a woman who can't identify one man or, or one boy, oh, you know you what I mean? Who, right. But I'm just saying, it's just interesting how that sometimes it sometimes is the, the posture, right? It's like, I don't know these men, like y'all need to find better men, but it's like, how do all these women and all these young girls can identify at least one man, but you can't identify none? It's just very interesting. You get in it. Right. And so I would say that that experience definite, definitely created like moments where I think I looked at my life and I was like, I got bachelor's degree, master's degree. You know what I mean? I didn't turn out. It didn't. It didn't. Almost similar to you, right? I didn't see myself as a victim, but I just, I didn't even associate the challenges, like the, the relational issues, the interpersonal issues. I didn't associate that abuse with those experiences. I didn't associate my like, um, hypervigilance or like my need to, um, like, for lack of a better word, like check people. I didn't, I didn't associate those, those behaviors with that experience. Um, and it wasn't until I started going to therapy in my mid to late twenties to, it was like the first time I had really spoken about it. I mean, I think I had told friends about it here and there. Um, and as a family, like we didn't talk about it. Um, for a short period of time, there was some conversations with like my mom, but like, you know, I think, you know, now I understand that while it was my experience, I, I directly experienced it. I also believe that my mom did too. You know, I think that, you know, it had to be very difficult to know that this was something that I had experienced and, you know, you can protect your kid from it. You know what I mean? Like you didn't protect your kid from it. That's one thing that parents want to do like they want to protect their kids from these experiences and she she did it you know what i mean so i'm i'm quite sure now that i understand some of the lack of conversation was probably fuck like i i like how did this happen like how did i let this happen you know what i mean and so and and again like she 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 wasn't responsible for someone else deciding that they wanted to take advantage of her kid. Like she, she didn't have any control over that, you know? 
It's a hard thing to sit with, though. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Because that's not, you know, when you have your kid and you look at them and you, you have all of these high hopes for them and you have all of these hopes that you're going to be able to inform them and provide them with so much. And you don't think that like one day they're going to, they're going to be abused in my house. You know what I mean? Like you, you don't, you don't think that, you know? And so, um, I will say that, yeah, I do think that those, that experience, um, definitely made things really, really, uh, challenging for me. And, and I think I, I, I think my achievements kind of made me see those experiences as um, like I did today, like try to minimize it. Like, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. Like, you know, I, I didn't turn out quote unquote, like you, like, again, like I know people who have suffered from sexual abuse and I know what their life has been. I know what their life consists of. And I think I looked at my life and I thought my life did not turn out like that. And so I'm good. You know what I mean? Like, I, I made it through kind of thing. And I think what I learned is that um, you can try to like avoid it all you want to, but that shit is going to pop up eventually. Like it don't matter how many degrees you get. It don't matter how much success you have in your life. It doesn't matter how responsible you are. It, is, it Like none of that stuff really matters. And what started to happen was like things were just popping up that I think were just again, me avoiding, like really putting a voice and a name and, 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 and like processing this experience that I had. Like I, I had never, when it happened, like I'd never had any counseling, never, it was not something that I was, was afforded to me, you know what I mean? When I was a kid. So I, you know, I think in some ways when there isn't conversations around it and there isn't any like support you know, provided in some ways you kind of think like this shit is normal. Like, you know, it's like, this is just what happens, you know? And I think I knew it was wrong, obviously. Like I knew it was wrong, but I, I don't know. Like there just wasn't any conversation about it. Like there wasn't any, any of that. So I think I just was like, well, I guess I got to move on. (laughs) You know, I guess I just got to figure it out, you know? And so, um, I think that I am definitely, I think I'm better for like, I, so I went to therapy and I did EMDR therapy for it. Um, and it was helpful. It was really helpful. Um, it was, it was, help, it was, it was helpful. I do think that I have processed through it. I think that I don't think that it, I don't want to say it doesn't affect me because I think what, what, what a lot of trauma uh, survivors want is they want their old life back. <laughs> they want, they want to be that person mm-hmm. and I'm, you're just never going to be that person. Like it's just, you know, yeah, you, you just, and I think, I think that has been the hardest thing is just accepting that this is who I am. I didn't expect to cry. No, I but it's okay. It's okay. No, but look, you are sharing something that is not easy. You know? And first of all, I, I commend you for being so vulnerable and so brave to speak up on something that should not have happened to you, but right. did. 
And like you said, you, you know, you wish that these things do not happen, right? And they do. And it's something that you experience, but it's not who you are. Right. It, you are so much more than that experience. Right. And so you have done tremendous work on yourself and yeah. processing this and, and making sure that it doesn't, like you said, your body does a great job of trying to protect you from these horrible incidents. Yeah. And they trick you. It tricks yeah, you. It, it tricks you and, and it gives you what you need at that time. And sometimes yeah. that incident is so traumatic and it's so debilitating that the only thing your body can do is push it down and avoid it. Yeah. When you have time and when you have the space and the skills and the preparedness to bring it back up, yeah, that's when you can do the work. But yeah. trauma work is not easy. It's that not. shit is hard. And <laughs> yeah. I think like you said, trying to process through that, you'll never be the, the same Dominique before that incident. Yeah. But also looking back to say, although I'm not going to be the same Dominique that did not have this take place. Yeah. Look at who Dominique is. Right. Yeah. You yeah. are a survivor. And that's one of the things I constantly tell people when you do experience any type of trauma, you're not a victim. You are a right. survivor. You have been able right. to go through something that should not have happened at all. Right. And you have been able to go through it and you are thriving. You are mm -hmm. soaring. And that yeah. is something that... That's your story. Like, yeah. that's your story. And I appreciate you for sharing that because I know that it's not easy to even just come up and, and say what you've said. But you are beautiful. You are someone who is thriving. And you are so much more than that event. So yeah. much more. Well, I appreciate you for sharing it because that made me... And this is the thing about sharing your story is that it makes people feel safe to share their story. Um, I've, I've wanted to say something on this podcast for since we started, you know, when we started our relationship series, like it, it definitely had room to come up there, but I just was like, I don't know if I'm ready. Like, I don't know if yeah, I want to. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's the thing that, you know, you know, there's so much shame that people experience from, and I, I know I didn't do anything wrong. I know that there was nothing that I did to deserve that, but I do think that people who experience trauma, they, they do go through a lot of shame. They do, they do. go through a lot of, sense. yeah. And you, 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 in lots of ways, you internalize what happened to you as something that you, did right that you caused this in some way and I don't think that I don't think that I ever had that but I do think that there were times when things were said that did make me question if what happened to me really happened or if I in some way caused that and so imagine being you know you know a young kid and things being said to you that make you question like, did I do something? So I think I did. I think there are times when I did, you know, feel like, you know, well, maybe, maybe it didn't happen the way I thought it happened or maybe I did cause it like, you know? And so I think what made me tear up was like, 
people want to be that old person again. And I think what, what they really want is they just, they just wish that that thing did not happen to them. Right. They just wish, I mean, cause I think you're right that while we want to be that old person, because you had those experiences, unfortunately, you can never be that old person again. And that doesn't always have to be a bad thing, but I think it takes a lot of work to to get there, right? To recognize that this happened to you and it wasn't okay, but it is okay that you're this new person now, right? Yeah. It's okay that this is who you are now. Um, that part. That, yeah. that part. Is yeah. You, that new person that you are. Yeah. Because of those experiences. Right. Yeah. Does not take away from who you are. And I think like right. taking inventory of that. And again, it, it takes work to do trauma work. It definitely it does. does. Yeah. Um, but knowing that you are not this broken thing, you are not yeah. someone who has to be treated with kid gloves. You are not yeah. someone who is walking around and is, has fragile stickers all over them. Um, right. I think finding ways to find your power mm-hmm. is so important. And yeah. I think, you know, I think society plays a major role in that and how we demonize survivors. Yeah. Um, I think that, that that definitely does. And even, you know, even well-meaning things, you know, when we tell kids, you know, oh, you know, she's fast or look at how she is, you know, look how she's dressed and she's, she's welcoming those things and things like that. That also plays a role in how you process these type of events. It because does. You still have those, those thoughts and those words, words hurt, words have a significant impact. And so you still have all of those things or even knowing that you also may have had certain thoughts. Right. Where you Mm -hmm. have experienced someone who, you know, before you had that experience where you will say, you know, maybe you knew the person who was the aggressor, who was the perpetrator and you are trying to find some way to make it make sense. And so you are looking at the the person who was actually assaulted and trying to find some way up to make them be wrong in the situation. We all mm-hmm. have done it in one way or another. And I yeah. think that that also plays into how survivors view themselves because yeah, we view for ourselves sure. through different lenses. And one of the lenses is how society norms are. And society yeah. norms are you put yourself. I mean, look at the the survivors from Cosby. Why were mm-hmm. you in that room? Right. Why you waiting thirty it. years? You know all exactly. these things. As exactly. if it would have mattered if she would have said it on day one. Like it, it, it's it's, it's but, so. But so quickly, you know, even with domestic violence, you know, well, why did you stay with him? You know, why did you stay with her? Um, you know, why did you go back? Um, right. You know, what did you do? You know, you antagonize them and mm-hmm. you just don't listen and things like that. People again and and it's not to villainize them because I think that it it's so many different layers, but right. the way that people who have experienced these things, I think the most important thing is to find ways to empower yourself. And we all know, I know, you know, like I said, I have family members who have been sexually assaulted and my mom was someone who was sexually assaulted. And one of the things that she was, was hyper-focused on, on kids and 
you know, what you wore. Uh, my mom was real big about us not going and sitting on males laps, whether they were family or not family. Um, my mom was very big about who gave baths. Um, she was so hyper-focused because she was sexually assaulted by a family member. Mm-hmm. So she was so hyper-focused on um, that happening that she literally, that was the lens that she saw. Everything was a potential red flag to even yeah. the kids going to the bathroom at a public restaurant. Like, no, she has to go with them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even when we would like have cheerleading and stuff, you could not go out in them little shorts. You could not go out in a sports bra because that welcomed um, eyes that shouldn't be looking at you. But a part of that too was it was victim blaming too because oh it for was, sure yeah you know you can't wear that because you're welcoming unwanted attention. Well. He shouldn't be looking at me like that. I don't care right. the damn what I got on. He, sh- right. If I say no, no should mean no. You know? And let's be honest. These men will look at you with sweatpants and a sweatshirt on. They don't Girl. care. If an assault and if, if a rapist want to rape, they going to rape. It exactly. don't matter what. It don't matter the barrier. They going to find a way to do what they going to do. And they're going to have any excuse of why they did it. They exactly. don't care if you in a freaking head to toe cover garment if they want to rape you they're going to rape you it is something within them that they want to do uh but again my mom was someone who was a survivor and she still her processing of it was to look at you as an individual again that sense of control that false sense of control you have to do everything right to make sure that you are not someone who experiences this. And even when my mom passed, my mom, I never shared with my mom about my sexual assault. Mm. Never once told her. Um, It was something that I had told my husband about um, early on. And I had told a couple of people. I did write about it in my my chapter in my book, um, which took a lot. Um, But I never disclosed it to my mom because... It would have destroyed her. It, mm. it, it would have destroyed her um, because yeah. she had already blamed so many of my experiences on her addiction. Yeah. Um, and I did have a sister who was sexually assaulted as well. And I remember my mom was really, really impacted by that. It, it set sure. her spiraling. And so um, I feel like if I would have told her she would not have known what to do. Um, yeah. So I, I never shared that with her. But I I do think that sharing your story, and like you said, unfortunately, even within your girl group of friends, yeah, it, it's horrible, but it's not uncommon for you to share a story and someone have some type of sexual assault story that they have experienced. And sometimes that is coded in minimizing. Sometimes it's coded in disassociating. Sometimes it's coded in a, oh, well, you know, because it wasn't a full on rape, that it wasn't rape. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, you said no. And that wasn't respected. You didn't give yeah. someone permission to do that. And they, they took advantage of you, but mm-hmm. it's a very common story. And I will say after sharing it, had several women in my life who has shared sexual assault stories and mm-hmm. it's more common than you would think. Absolutely. Sadly. 
It is. And I remember like after that, like I didn't know it at the time, but when I went through trauma therapy and I started to like think about and look at my behaviors, I like we used to wear sweatpants all the time. I used, I was very quiet. Um, like I, I just remember things and, and I think what was so challenging for me was because after that, I often had male attention that I did not want. Mm -hmm. And I think I, whether it was, I was a, I used to have a paper route and men, men, right. I'm a, I'm a kid, right. I'm 13, 14 years old. Follow me home, say stuff like, I wish you were my paper girl. And I'm like, literally a a girl, (laughs) you know, that you're a grown man. And I think I oftentimes thought, well, if I just kind of like what your mom would say, like, if I just cover, if I just wear sweatpants and sweatshirt, if I just, you know, if I don't, and I've always been, I've always been shapely from a little, from a, from a time I was a, a, a kid. So I never looked like I was a kid, you know what I mean? Even though I was, or always looked older, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always just thought like, if I, if I just cover up, if I just, you know, but like the reality is like, it's, it's only so much covering up you could do. Like that, that's not the answer to the, that's not the answer or the solution to someone who doesn't understand that their behavior is inappropriate. Like exactly. the, 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 and I know that we live in this world where we want to protect people, but there's a fine line between again, trying to keep people safe and victim blaming, right? Like I can make decisions that are going to keep me safe. Maybe they might keep me safe. Maybe, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. but we live in a world where we live in a rape culture society that doesn't make the people, I won't even say men because anyone can engage. I mean, if you hear the number of stories of grown men who talk about their babysitters who, you know, introduced them to sex, they don't even consider it rape. You know what I mean? Because we live in such a society that tells men, this is what you want. You want to have this kind of attention. When introducing men, young boys to sex early is why we kind of have this happening right now as well. Right. We've, we've, we've normalized this experience for young boys and and men and they don't even see this as a problem. They don't see this as an issue. And so I definitely look back and I I think I tried to um, mask my body in so many ways that didn't protect me anyway, because I still ended up receiving unwanted attention that I didn't didn't ask for. You know what I mean? So I, I definitely think that I fell into that for a long time, just thinking like, if I just cover up, if I just, you know, keep my head down and and I don't engage, then I'll be okay. And that, that just, it just didn't happen. You know, I mean, eventually I got comfortable with my body and got comfortable with myself in a way, but I think because I, I was taking charge of that, you know what I mean? Like I was in the driver's seat of that. Like no one was forcing that on me, you know? And so... Yeah, I do. I definitely think that we try to find ways to keep ourselves safe. And the reality is it just, it doesn't always keep us safe. And that's the scariest part about living in this world and having experiences of trauma, right? Because it it does, it does change you, you know, and it, and not only does it change you, but it, it makes you angry. It makes you f- furious, like that, that you have to now adjust your life to, 
an act or acts that you didn't ask for. You know what I mean? So I definitely, yeah. To know. And I'm one of the things they talk about with these big T traumas is that we all as humans have these core beliefs. And the, one of the things about trauma is it really challenges those core beliefs. And one of the core beliefs that we have is that we live in a just society and that if you are good, good things happen to you. If you put certain things in place, you can protect yourself. And so when you have these, these traumatic events in like a big T, um, it shakes those core beliefs. And that's why people have such a difficult time functioning after that, because it literally rocks you to your core that there are, we're literally walking around with real life monsters in the world. And sometimes they are your neighbor. Sometimes they're a family member. Sometimes they are a friend. They're not always a stranger. Um, And when you have to digest that, you mm. have to admit that to yourself. Um, how do you process that? How do you not look out into the world and see nothing but um, landmines and, you know, and things that are hazardous? How do you live your life knowing these things, knowing yeah. that you now have a new lens of how you view things? And I think like that is one of the things that you work with in therapy when you are dealing with trauma is that although you have this new lens, you also have to see the good. You can't just, it can't be all yeah. bad, but it right. also can't be all good. Like we can't pretend like these things are not happening. Um, yeah. And that's why you have a lot of parents who are now trying to work on consent with their younger kids, like their boys yeah. and, you know, and really putting the responsibility onto the male. We're putting the responsibility on a female too. Cause like I said, sexual assaults do happen yep. with the males as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, consent, um, and what does consent look like? You know, if someone is literally under the influence and they are in and out of consciousness, they cannot consent to you they doing can't. anything to them. Um, right. And and not just protecting that person, but protecting yourself to not put yourself in a situation where, you know, you have done something questionable. Um, but I think like one of the things that trauma work does is, again, not that new lens that you have, because we can't erase these experiences. They are now a part of your existence. Mm-hmm. They also do not have it where you're literally looking at everything as a possible landmine. And we know that again, that disassociation, the, um, you know, triggering and needing to be like grounding and things like that. It's where, you know, like a veteran could be riding, driving a car. And if they have experienced like an IED and things like that, it could be triggering for them to see um, garbage on the side of the road. Because Mm. sometimes that could be where they have hidden um, an IED. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, loud crowds, things like that. And so you are now hypervigilant and you can't be in that state. Um, Adrenaline serves you for the moment but having adrenaline stay within your body Mm. you can't function with that you can't yeah um and and so we we try to get people to process that but i think like that's one of the things that you would do if you have experienced something like this is that trauma work of adjusting that new lens to have that balance yeah um 
to where you're not seeing everything as a potential hazard. Because if you're looking at everything as being all bad, who wants to live in that type of state? You can't function in that. That where you become literally like, just like, I can't move frozen Mm -hmm. because everything is a, is a possible threat. Um, so I will say like, that's one of the things that trauma therapy will do is to help adjust your lens. Mm -hmm. So you can still be alert, um, because you still need that sense of empowerment, right? but where you're not so on guard and everything is, you know, potentially going to kill you. Right. Right. Exactly. All right, so let's get to small T traumas. So, and thank you for creating this space and making it safe. I appreciate it. I really do. So small T traumas are situations that exceed our capacity to cope and cause a disruption in emotional functioning. And these are, um, these situations are not life or bodily integrity threatening, but they do still create some um, feelings of helplessness. And so here are some of the things that I want you all listeners to consider when you're thinking of small T traumas. Um, So the first thing is that these experiences tend to be overlooked because some, like I just did, right, may see our reaction to it as an overreaction that is out of step with the nature of the experience, right? So if something you know, happens to you, like maybe you had a a friendship breakup, right? People may not want you or may not validate that that experience was challenging and your reaction to that uh, experience, they may see that as, again, out of step with the natural reaction to an experience like that. You know, it may not be your big T trauma, but, uh, you know, interpersonal conflict or, you know, conflict with a friend can still be considered traumatic, right? And so, you know, that's that's the first thing. And also, sometimes therapists overlook these situations, right? They overlook the ways in which um, their their clients or their patients are describing or or sharing an experience that they may not consider a quote unquote big enough traumatic event, right? Even though it may not be a big T trauma, it does still deserve space and 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 time, right? And and support around how do I help this this potential client or patient process through this experience, right? So one thing is 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 to in those situations, it's important for you as the person who experienced it to validate your own experience, right? Because sometimes you are going to get people who don't necessarily agree with your reaction or your, again, quote unquote, overreaction to that experience. Sometimes in those situations, it's really important for you to validate your experience because what happens, and I know that I've experienced this, where that self-doubt is so strong, right? You have this experience you believe it happened. You believe that this was something that you suffered, right? Or at least, and at least at the very least, you experienced. And when you have people who minimize or reduce your experience to less than nothing, it can make you question. Okay, I know that I had this experience. I know that this is how it made me feel. I know this is how I've reacted as a result but other people are telling me that I shouldn't be, right? So there's there's this self-trust that we have to have within ourselves that 
you know, we don't necessarily need someone to co-sign the shit that we've experienced. That sometimes that we can just believe that that was our experience. And other people don't, I don't need someone to co-sign what I went through to make it valid, right? It's valid because it's valid. And so that's, that's the work, um, you know, that we have to do when we are experiencing small T traumas that people don't necessarily see as real. Um, the next one is what can also be overlooked is what can happen if one experiences several small C traumas in a short amount of time. So we think about someone who might experience like multiple losses, right? Devron has talked so much about these multiple losses that she's experienced in her life. If we found someone who constantly has relationship issues, right? These interpersonal battles with friends and family and significant others, these things can be traumatized and they can be overwhelming, right? And they may not, again, they may not have been your neglect or abandonment or um, domestic violence, right? But they are, they are again, these small T traumas that have happened very consistently over a small period of time. And that can definitely um, make managing these things challenging um, for you. So, um, and the last one is, Many times people who are looking for support in a therapeutic space are coming to address a small T trauma that has never um, or or that has happened over the course of their lifetime or in a very recent past. So a large amount of people who are coming to therapy are coming because they've experienced a trauma, you know, and oftentimes it is a small T trauma that either they probably didn't see as impactful enough until it became very impactful over time. Um, and so some of the examples that we could give around small T traumas include things like divorce, um, financial issues, infidelity, um, and interpersonal conflict. Um, and so these are just some examples. Um, I would say in my personal life, hmm, I would say probably grief and interpersonal conflict would be like the small T traumas that I can just think of off the top of my head. Um, I, um, I guess the biggest grief or experience of grief that I've had was the loss of my grandma, my, my maternal grandmother. Um, we were very close. Um, I mean, when I grew up, you know, growing up, she lived across the street from my elementary school. So I was literally at her house every day, her and my grand, my grand, my grandpa every day. Like they were like second parents, um, to me and my siblings. Um, they were very supportive of my mom, right? Because she was a single parent. And so she worked a lot and, you know, my, my grand, my grandpa was, you know, there for us. My grandmother was there for us. Um, and I lost my grandfather when I was like 12 or 13. And at the time, it was probably the most traumatic thing. Well, it probably was one of the most traumatic things I had experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, but losing my grandmother in my adult life, for some reason, definitely was more impactful when I think about it. Um, not to weigh them, but if I had to weigh them, I think it was just more impactful to me. I don't, I think as I got older, I truly understood her love of family and her love of keeping the family together and how close knit we were because of her presence and her values. And like that, 
as I got older, became so important to me. It became such a value of mine. And so I think losing her, because I saw her as superwoman, I don't think I ever even considered life where she was not going to be on this earth. And it's so, so crazy, right? To think like that. But I never, I just never imagined her not being here. You know what I mean? I, I never, it just never crossed my mind. So it was, definitely challenging. Um, uh, my mom lost, well, we lost one of my mom's, one of my mom's friends. Um, he died, um, a few years ago. It was actually, um, uh, I was probably maybe a couple months pregnant with Savon and I wanted to tell him and I, but I wanted to wait. Um, cause I was still like early in my first trimester and I was still kind of nervous about everything and I never got a chance to tell him. And that like, I think about that sometimes and it like I I kick myself because we were so close, like so entirely close. And I I wish that I would have been able to share that with him because I know he would have been so happy and so proud. Um we were really close. And so that was hard, um, for sure. And then I'll say interpersonal conflict, you know, I will say this because, you know, if you know anything about my family and my mom, like we are better at managing conflict now, I think, but growing up, like conflict was just not something that you did. It was like what my mom said went and that was just that. And so you wasn't really, it wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't room for managing conflict. Right. So my mom is like a zero to a hundred type person. And so I think that, I think in lots of ways I did grow up pretty passive because of that. Um, because I also, um, my relationship with my twin brother was toxic, very toxic when I was a a kid. Um, and there were times when I was aggressive, but only out of like defending myself. But most times I was pretty passive, I think. And I think what you learn is that being passive is, I call it like being low maintenance, right? Like not expecting much from people, not depending on people, not asking people for much. What can I do to make life easier for you? Not how can I take up space, right? I never, Mm -hmm. taking up space, I feel like always got me, it always was a negative, I feel like. And my idea of the moments when I took up space was me defending myself, me protecting myself. And I, I never, I don't, I rarely feel like I got, any validation for the experiences I had with my twin brother. Like I honestly, to be candid, like until I started going to therapy at the, you know, when I was like in my mid twenties, I never even considered like what he did and what our experiences were as abuse. I honestly just thought like, okay, well he was just like that to everybody. And he was like that to everybody. And it still was abuse. You know what I mean? It still was toxic. It still was it was definitely it was hard it was hard being his sister it was hard living in the house with him it was just it was just hard you know and I just always over I, I guess I have a, a pretty na- a pretty big knack for minimizing because I definitely used to minimize that like oh you know whatever like until I like got the chance to process through that like I was like damn like I guess I was abused by that motherfucker I guess, I guess there was some abuse there. I guess, I guess it was, it wasn't as 
normal, you know what I mean, as we we think, you know. And I think those situations definitely made me more passive. Um and then I think though I as I got older and I had a, a really close friend who I met in college who was like the epitome of like the kind of the kind of woman I wanted to be like she was assertive and sure of herself and just like she just had this aura about her that was just like she just knew that she was confident and she I don't know there was just something about her and I definitely feel like my relationship with her definitely helped me to see the importance of being assertive. And so I think I kind of took that on, but I think I kind of took it a little too far, <laughs> the assertiveness <laughs> stuff, um, where I was kind of borderline, like cocky, kind of borderline, like self, like very, I think I it was definitely borderline, like, assertive slash cocky and so I think I could have like toned that down a little bit um and so I think now my my mission is to be assertive and to be um to to focus on the self-trust because I think when you go through these experiences in life it does make you question yourself it makes you question and I and I, I think it's not it's for me, it's not it's not imposter syndrome where you question like your abilities and you question like if you're supposed to be here. I think for me, it's like I I I didn't get the validation that I think I needed and deserved in my formative years um, to just like acknowledge that like what you're going through is not easy. You know what I mean? And I'm not going to say I never got that, but I think it was very rare that my experiences were validated. <laughs> you know what I mean? That like, yeah. it's hard being his sister. It's hard living in this house with him. It's hard being stuck here with him. It's hard having a locker next to his. Like, I just, I never got those. I don't think I got those things as often as I, that I think would have been helpful for me. And so that's the work that I'm doing now is just trying to like, reduce that self-doubt, you know what I mean? And trust that like any decision that I make, as long as I was trusting myself, even if it turns out bad, it don't matter, right? Because yeah. the, the goal is that I trust what I'm feeling and I trust that this that I think this is a good decision for myself. If it doesn't turn out good, that doesn't mean it was a bad idea because we don't have control over the future. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. We only have control over... Yeah, right. You only have control over the choices that you make. And whatever happens outside of that is could be divine, could be, you know, your story is already written and you don't know that that decision isn't going to pan out the way that it does. But it doesn't mean that you don't make that choice because it's one that you believe is worth choosing. And that's the work that I, I feel like I'm I'm committed to now is is just trusting myself, trusting that. You know, if trusting my feelings, trusting that if something is making me feel a certain way that I need to talk about it, I need to be honest about it. You know, I need to maybe dig a little bit and see why I'm feeling that way. But that's that's the work that I'm that I'm trying to do to combat the interpersonal conflict, because I think that it it has definitely impacted my life. It it definitely has. And and again, I've I've experienced lots of 
um, moments of interpersonal conflict that I think I just wrote off as like, oh, that's just life. And while it is just life, sometimes it does still deserve TLC that I don't yeah. think I always gave it. So, yeah. yeah. I would say I've had several <laughs> small T experiences. And I think, you know, interpersonal conflict is definitely one of them. Um, yeah. Like I said before, when I experience a traumatic event, I tend to, or previously, I tend to have tried to find a sense of control. Um, and a part of that was to come in like a wrecking ball. Um, mm, is that right? Yes. And my <laughs> mouth can be, it, it's really has, I have done a lot of work to correct that and to, um, you know, handle things with a little bit more grace. But previously, my mouth was horrible. Like I could literally. Girl, you ain't got to tell me. <laughs> and so um, <laughs> I always tell people I get my anger from my dad. And so I knew from a very young age, I would go from one to a thousand. Um, and there was a lot of like, I'm no longer like this, but when I was younger, if someone did something to me, I would think very well of how to get you back. Um, and it would normally come at a surprise to you. And it would be where what I would do back to you was not anywhere compared to what you've done to me. Like I, I would want to destroy you. Um, and so, you know, what I used to do with like my sisters, like, so my mom used to always say like, cause I was the middle child or I am the middle child. Um, I would be like, not sneaky. I was the type of kid that I did something. I would be honest and tell you I did it and like just take the repercussions. But I feel like because of who my sisters were, um, when we would experience certain things, my older sister was like the very intelligent one, book smart. Everyone just felt like she just had like this, um, you know, great life ahead of her. Um, and I was like the problematic one. Like I said, if I was drinking, I'd be like, I was drinking. Um, and so, <laughs> You're like, I ain't gonna lie to you. I ain't yeah, gonna lie to like, you. Now. I, look, I, I won't tell you a lie. You might not like what I tell you, but I ain't gonna <laughs> tell you a lie. Um, so I remember, and this was very traumatic. So I remember that we were living, my mom had moved to, um, so I spoke so many times about my mom's addiction and, you know, my mom was addicted to crack cocaine and expanded over 24 plus years on and off. And, um, my mom was someone who she never had a problem getting herself a job. She could, she, my mom would tell her story and she was not shameful about it. She did not care who she needed to tell, but she would tell her story. And because of who my mom was and just the, the grace that she carried herself with, she would always be able to get herself a job. And yeah. so one of the things she had done was she had told her story and she had moved to this place outside of Pittsburgh, which is called Bridgeville. And 
I remember she had like this one bedroom apartment. It was nice, but like she didn't have much furniture at all. And she was doing really good. We went to visit her and then she had decided because we really missed her that we would move with her, Um, which we did. The area at the time, I don't know what it's like now, but it is, there are, the incomes for residents there are very up and down. Um, Mm -hmm. There are people who are extremely wealthy and then there are people who are not. And obviously we were not, we were living in a one bedroom apartment um, with myself and my two sisters and my mom. We did not have much furniture. And, um, the school was where some kids were driving to school in BMWs and Mercedes. We didn't have a car. Yeah. Um, and I was used to living in a town where it wasn't so up and down. Um, there also was a good mixture of races. Like where I went to school, it wasn't like the blacks all hung together and the whites all hung together. It was like, you know, if you were cool, you were cool. But at that school, there was a big racial um, issue. And um, there was a low amount of minorities and there was a lot of racism. Um, And so I had a couple of experiences there um, that were pretty traumatic. Like I was first called a spick at that high school Mm. and I didn't even know what that was. And this is someone who had spent some time in Florida living with my father and my stepmother. And even in living in Florida in the panhandle area, I had never been called anything that wasn't my name. Um, And even in the neighborhood that we lived in, uh, my stepmom is white and my dad is black. Um, I still didn't have like racial things. Um, Uh My mom had talked about it. We were not, you know, you know, naive about it, but it was just like, if I thought I was going to experience racism, it would have been down South. Um, Yeah. 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 But no, I was introduced to racism and uh, well, people don't get that. What they say about Pennsylvania is like, you got Pittsburgh on one side, Philly on one side and Alabama or Mississippi or fill in the blank in the middle, you know? So yeah. (laughs) Yes. But so I experienced there was like a race wa- a riot um, while I was there. But also during my high school year, um, I had come across my older sister's diary. And in her diary, she had basically detailed plans to harm us. Okay. Mm. Um, I had taken her diary and I thought I was just going to find like some, you know, Juicy stuff. Yeah. And I locked myself in the bathroom and I had never seen my sister so angry. And like my sister also has my dad's anger. um, But she literally was like trying to break down the door to like, Mm. it was like scary. And we ended up having to call 911 and she was hospitalized. And it was the first time she was diagnosed. And Mm. I remember feeling guilt. I'm sure. Because I loved my sister. She was like this, everything I wanted to be. I was constantly, you know, growing up was constantly compared to her. And like, she was here and I was like, not even going to reach, you know, Mm. there. Um, So 
when I like had reported what I found, it was just like I had um, kind of like abandoned her. And I remember her being hospitalized because she had to be 302. And that was the first time I was ever introduced to mental health. Like I said, my mom had been in recovery, so I've been to like rehabs and things like that. But I had never been introduced to the mental health aspect of things. Yeah. Um, and having to go and see her in the hospital, medicated them, you know, trying to adjust her meds and things like that. It was a lot. It was very traumatic. And sure. my mom trying to do the best for her, but we never really, and my mom did try to get us like in touch with counseling, but it was more so focusing on her substance abuse. Yeah, And I will say like, that was a struggle because that was the introdu- introduction to my sister and her mental health concerns. But that kind of played out throughout our interaction. And I think like, um, no one really sat with me to explain what was going on, what her diagnosis meant, mm-hmm. what, you know, um, why it was so concerned. Like I knew what I read was, you know, concerning, but like no one explained to me that, you know, with her diagnosis, she could have extreme highs and extreme lows and things to like be, you know, cautious about. And, and in addition to all of that, also dealing with a parent who is on and off with active addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it really created a challenge for me. And I think a way of reacting to that was, I was just like, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want to do. Like life is so crazy. You know, um, no one's really giving me any instruction on how to deal with these things that are happening. And again, that idea of control was so important to me. And so I kind of like bucked at the system, like, okay, if life is going to continue to throw these crazy scenarios at me, I am just going to wing it. Like I'm going to figure out what this is going to look like for me. I'm not going to let it impact me the way that obviously it's impacted my older sister because I don't want to go and be hospitalized. I had a very naive and ignorance about mental health. And so I was, you know, trying to do everything possible to um, not put myself in that same situation. And I think like that also dealt with, issues of how I handled conflict because it was like, okay, in my eyes at that time period was if you guys had paid attention to her and you guys had, you know, not had us in certain situations, because the thing was my older sister was like a mother to us as well, because oftentimes my mom was not present. And so a lot of her childhood was lost, unfortunately, trying to parent two younger kids who, you know, bucked against the system and weren't always the most, you know, caring and listening. And, you know, who are you? You're my sister. But she also was acting like a mother. And so, like, I also had, like, the challenges of, like, look, if you guys would speak up, we wouldn't be dealing with the shit that we're dealing with. And so, Mm -hmm. like, that caused me to be, like, anytime I would be against conflict, I'm going to like literally come in with the bulldozer. Like I'm mm-hmm. going to pull the blanket off of everything and we're going to say what's going on. And you can't always do that. Yeah. <laughs> it 
it's yeah. not appropriate to be like that. You, it wasn't meeting people where they were at. It wasn't even having an understanding of why certain things were taking place. It right. was just like I came up with what the issue was, and my idea was it was because y'all just let shit fester, mm-hmm. and we need to call a spade a spade. And for a long time, that was my way of interacting with any type of conflict was to come in with a like a bulldozer and knock everything out and just bring attention to it. And I will say it it did not always be met in the best way, right? I'm sure. Uh, yeah. So like that that's a way that I would say interpersonal conflict has happened. I have since gotten better with that and and knowing like sometimes you do not need to have a wrecking ball. Sometimes you need to have like a little hammer and literally like a kid's hammer and that's okay too. Like that would do the job. Um, but that was a way of me having offensive control. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, you know, the grief, like, you know, I was raised by my grandmother and my aunt, my uncle, and my grandfather when my mom was actively in her addiction. So they all helped parent us. And um, I was in college when I lost my grandmother. And I just remember that was such a significant loss because it was like losing your mother. Um, and it was to the point even when I went to her um her service before her service we had where you could go and like you know view the body and things like that i couldn't even view it like um because it was too real like it it made it real to me um and i just wasn't ready to see her like that and my grandmother like your grandmother was like a powerhouse like Mm -hmm. my grandmother moved to Sharon with her three kids after being in two previous abusive relationships. She didn't have, you know, a college degree. She worked at Macar, um, really pulled herself up, you know, had a house. Her house was beautiful, always clean, which was very different from like living with someone who was actively in their addiction. Um, my grandmother like was a crafter, like Literally, you would, she would literally go to this store and get like, um, this is back then when you could have like an outfit that she would like, she would go and get the patterns and then she would literally be able to make anything. Like she was great yeah. with her hands. Um, food wise, food was a wonderful. She was mm-hmm. just like, there was nothing that I didn't think my grandmother could do. Um, and so Although I know that she had gotten fragile, like she had um, arthritis in her hands really bad. So she wasn't able to sew and things like that. But like even my cousins, like to this day, will tell stories of she would still be trying to do stuff. Like we would like me to sit down. Like, <laughs> right. Why are you like my cousin tells a funny story about like she was supposed to come with her boyfriend to watch my grandmother and she came in and there was wine all over the floor. And it was because my grandma was trying to make like a cheese dish. (laughs) Meanwhile, my cousin was still in high school. Okay. Like she was not an adult, but my grandma was so used to like entertaining and things like that. Like she, she was just like a powerhouse. And so like losing her was so difficult because it was Mm -hmm. like this, this strong woman this powerhouse of a woman 
who literally had saved me and my siblings, um, you know, from so many different experiences had given us a different way of living with my mom. Um, it was just so difficult to lose her. Um, and I, I honestly thought that that would be the worst loss that I had ever experienced. And then I lost my mom. Um, and that like took the fucking cake. Like that was like, what the hell? And I actually just, um, listened to a podcast with, um, Melissa Ford and she was talking Uh, on, um, with Angie uh, Martinez. Angie Martinez, yeah. And the way that she describes this it was club It was perfect, yeah. It was perfect. And I was like, yeah. that is it. Like, you, when you lose your mother, you become this person, a part of this club that no one wants to be in. And it doesn't matter at what age you lose your mom, you know. Yeah. You always need your mom. Like, that is your guiding light. That is your your connection to to everyone else and losing it is like you are no longer tethered to to society. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's such a major loss. And now I find myself, I have my stepmother who is literally my mom would tell you if she was still here, that is my mom as well. Yeah. And now I find myself on pins and needles of if something were to happen to her, I honestly don't know how it would function. And I honestly, it might even be compared to a big T event because yeah, she literally is just everything to me. Like she's everything. And so now I, you know, when she's sick, I get concerns. Um, you know, when she, my stepmom just says crazy stuff. And like, sometimes she'll say stuff and I'm just like, you can't leave me. Like, what are you talking about? But like right. just having those, that's the thing about multiple griefs, especially when they have been back to back and they've been unexpected. Um, sometimes we start looking at other people and we start thinking about their life expectancy and what it would be like if they leave and you try yeah. to like prepare yourself in a sense, but you really aren't preparing yourself because there's, there's just no preparing. Um, but I do, I do notice that with, with these griefs is that I start to look at other people and think about their life expectancy and what that would be like if they were no longer here. And it brings a sense of, like I said before about the big T stuff, it changes the way that your lens is of Mm -hmm. viewing things as like, we all have the end date. Yeah. Um, and that Scary. is hard to sit with. Yeah. Very, very hard to sit with. So I would it say is. like those are the smaller T's. But like you said, like they can bring you into therapy. And oftentimes when you come into therapy, you come with these surface issues. And then a good therapist is going to start unraveling that. And they're going mm-hmm. to start digging. And they're going to actually see the roots of that tree. And mm-hmm. oftentimes the roots are these small teas, you know, yeah. um, and that is what is at the roots of your tree. And they have mm-hmm. to kind of unpack that and figure out how they can give you some resources to deal with that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you for tuning in and allowing us to be vulnerable together as we soar. 
If you enjoyed this episode and are interested in hearing more from us, make sure you hit that follow button so you are alerted when a new episode drops and leave a rating and a review below. Our podcast can be found on all major podcast platforms as well as YouTube. We'd love to hear your comments and how you're choosing to soar these next couple of weeks. Interact with us on Instagram at But What If I Soar as well as on our business pages at Free To Be Counseling Services and at Social MacGyver. Let's continue ascending or gliding even amongst the turbulence. Thank you.